you think of cinephile directors, the names that usually come to mind are Joe Dante, Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, but what about writer-director Fred Olin Ray? Ray is the filmmaker behind such video store classics as Evil Tunes, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, and Armed Response, but he's also a massive film fan. He wrote a book called The New Poverty Row about independent distributors. He cast long-forgotten film stars like Bowery Boys actor Hunt Hall in his projects. And he also runs a DVD distribution company called Retromedia, where he's released such films as Planet of the Dinosaurs, The Alien Factor, and The Beast from the Haunted Cave with brand new special features. I was curious to talk to Fred about his cinephilia, and he was nice enough to take some time to have a chat about his film fandom and directorial career. So I hope you enjoy this conversation that jumps right into it after I ask Fred, how does he cast his pictures? You know, I still enjoy working with people whose work I enjoyed when I was growing up. I mean, although now, at my age, most of the people that I watched in films while I was growing up are dead. There's still a few of them around, and I, I still, you know, if I can get somebody in a movie that I enjoyed when I was a younger person, I, it's it's still fun. But a lot of the, you know, the old motorcycle movie stars and the old, you know, AIP, you know, beach party and horror film stars are pretty much gone. There's still a handful of people around I know, and I still try to work with them when I can. I was just watching your film, The Shooter, today, and w speaking of motorcycle actors, William Smith is right in it. Yeah, Bill Smith was, uh, that's probably the, that's the third movie I did with Bill Smith that I, that I can remember. You know, uh, he was a guy that I really liked a lot when I was, uh, when I was younger. Uh, as a, you know, once you start working with these people, of course, you realize sometimes they're quite a handful. And he, he was one of those guys who was kind of a handful, you know. When did you, like, realize that movies was the thing that you wanted to work in? Well, you know, I wanted to be a makeup artist. I didn't have any idea what being a director was. You know, as I grew up reading famous monsters and stuff, you know, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a makeup artist. I mm -hmm. wanted to be the guy who made this, the monster suits and, you know, prosthetic pieces and stuff. And I did do that. But it was just too much trouble finding your next job and you were always between jobs looking for work. So I thought, you know, I need to find something that pays enough money that uh, in between this job and that job, you know, then everything's okay. And I found that directing paid a lot more than being a makeup effects guy mm. and uh, paid a lot more than almost everything. I, I, I was telling somebody the other day, I said, usually even including the stars on a lot of my films, I'm still the highest paid person on my show. You know, every once in a while, an actor will make more than I do. But for the most part, I'm the highest paid person there. I heard you once say, that you did fanzines when you were a teenager, including one called Dagon, I believe? That was the main one. Mm -hmm. I, that went three issues, and then I did one more that I don't think I even distributed called Fantasy Film Journal or Fantasy Film Review or something like that. You know, I took graphic arts in high school, so I had access to printing materials and stuff. And, you know, when I was in that heyday, you know, that was, I, you know, I, I, other than the fact that I hate being as old as I am, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be in all these different eras. I was, I, I, I was in that 1964 monster renaissance, you know, with model kits and the monsters and the Adams family and notebooks and lunchboxes and, you know, everything a kid who was into monster movies could want. It was all right up front. You know, and then I lived through that fanzine era of, you know, gore creatures and Black Oracle and Photon and all those. So it was a great time to be, you know, a kid that was into this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and I lived mostly in Florida, but I, you know, I, I was very interested in that. I had friends who were interested in writing and we did things. We interviewed people and we published these little, you know, they weren't anywhere near as good, but there were a hundred fanzines and mm -hmm. if you looked at them all you know there were three maybe that were really good and then there were 97 that were like mine <laughs> you learned a lot 
you learned a lot. And, um, you know, I was in the military during Vietnam and uh, having published my own fanzine and, and written and been a journalist, uh, you know, high school and all that stuff helped me slide into being a journalist during Vietnam, which was by all accounts, a pretty safe spot to be in. And I was very grateful. You just mentioned journalism. Was that something that you ever considered pursuing? Mm. No, that was just, you know, I was, in, I was interested in media, you know, and, mm. I, and I was interested. I, and I, you know, probably someone could psychoanalyze all that shit and people and find out that what you were really looking for was some way to express yourself. And a little fanzine that cost this amount of money to print gave you a voice, you know, because now everybody who has a computer can have a blog spot or a website or a this or a that. And it's not as difficult. In fact, it's easy today to spout off whatever you think and what your opinion is. But when I was a teenager, if you wanted people to hear what you thought of, you know, the vampire lovers or twins of evil, yeah. you had to write for a fanzine or publish a fanzine and, you know, and I think a lot of that came from people who wanted to be a part of something, who wanted to create something. I had gotten to a point in my life, you know, once I got out of the service, I said, you know what? I said, you know, obviously, you know, my parents kept trying to tell me, yeah, filmmaking is not a thing for you. It's not a thing for anybody. And, you know, and I said, well, you know, if I could get on the radio, be on TV one time and make one movie, maybe I'd be happy. But you're not. You don't. You're not happy. And. I finally, I went to school, uh, coming out of the service, I, I went to school and got a first class FCC license, which allowed me to get a job at a PBS radio, uh, TV station. And I said, you know what, maybe if I worked in the TV station, I'd be happy that I'm not making movies. If I worked in television. And it was kind of cool, you know, because while I was there, I directed a, a special with Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And, you know, we had a Count uh, Warlock horror host. It wasn't me, but it was in the station. But as soon as I got there, I discovered they had 16 millimeter sound cameras. Oh my God, how do I get that on the weekend? <laughs> and I did. I borrowed it and they, they gave me some out of date film and I was off and running on the weekends making the brain. We just, you know. Oh yeah, I've seen that one. <laughs> it was awful. But I mean, <laughs> it was like, I don't know how to make film. I never took a filmmaking course in my life. I learned everything by making the mistakes. All my mistakes are on film and you, they're all out there for people to see. You know, I never had a course that taught me how sound was done or how editing was done. So I looked at books and I looked at the Magic Magazine and I just did it. And I said, I'm never going to make a short film. I said, I don't want to make short films. I want to make feature length movies that have a chance of making their money back. And I don't think I made a short film until I did Spydora four years ago. I really enjoyed that. that I ever made. You know what? It was time to do something just for me because mm -hmm. I, I get so fed up of people telling you how your final edit's going to look mm. and how your final script's going to be. And now we're doing, I've been doing TV movies now for, I don't know, years now. And for the most part, in a television movie, they tell you who the cast is. You yeah. can maybe throw your hat in there for some of the smaller roles or whatever, but they call you and they go, oh, you got George Hamilton, Shelley Long. And I'm like, okay, great. You know what I mean? It's just, every once in a while you want, again, it goes back to creating your own family. You want to make a movie where you can fail on your own sword. You, can, you know, you want to, if it fails, you failed. Mm -hmm. If it succeeds, you succeeded, but you can do it your own way. And that's what Spidora was for me, was the ability to just have everything my way, no matter how it turned out. It would at least be my film. And when you moved to L.A., I believe it was after the alien death, did you have like a goal in mind of what you wanted to do? Nah, not really. I mean, 
we moved, my brother and I moved here together. Mm-hmm. And it's because I, I got I got really pissed off. I was working on a TV station, Channel 35 in Orlando, which is now the Fox affiliate. And I produced Alien Dead, and I produced a children's TV special uh, called The Halloween Planet, which in the station, I used the station, and a producership came, a producer's position came up. And I was an engineer, I was an on-air director, engineer. And I said, I'd like to apply for this job because I just produced a movie and it produced a children's TV special. And they said, you don't have the college education that's required to apply. Oh, man. I said, really? And they said, yeah. I was so pissed. And then I didn't get the raise or as much of a raise as I thought I should have. And I said, my brother had nothing to lose. And I feel like just saying, fuck you. I'm going to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I'll show all of you. <laughs> and, uh, and we did. We loaded up a car. Uh, I had $180. My brother had like $700. That's all we had. And we drove across country. And right before I was to leave, my ex-wife, who had been missing in action for several years, called out of the blue and said if I would meet her in a grocery store parking lot, she would hand me a four-year-old boy who was my son. I hadn't seen since he was two. She said, do you want him? I said, of course I do. And I drove to Cocoa Beach, Florida from Orlando, and I picked up this, this little kid who didn't know me in a parking lot with a grocery bag of clothes. And that was the last we saw of his mother for 20-some years. And so now I'm a bit, I've quit my job. We got less than a 1000 bucks. We're driving across country, and someone handed me a four-year-old kid. So it was an adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know what I would do. I thought I would, you know, I had contacts with uh, Roger Corman's uh, company, mm-hmm. Marianne Fisher, and Bob Skotak had previously offered me a job on Galaxy of Terror to build this giant maggot. But mm-hmm. I couldn't take the job. I couldn't take it. They needed somebody. So I thought, okay, I had it all set up to meet Marianne Fisher at, at, at New World Pictures when I got here. And then, I, and when I got there, nothing was going on. There were no jobs. There was nothing. So I, and here, here I am, finally, you know, in the unemployment line. Where in Orlando, I had two jobs. I had never, I'd never been in an unemployment line in my whole life. I was lucky enough to get on at a place called Surrey and Associates in Pasadena, who were making rose bowl floats. And I went there and I worked as a sculptor because of my makeup effects background. I did a lot of sculpting on these giant floats for the Rose Bowl Parade, and I did the Frankenberry commercial, where the kids are wearing these rubber masks of Frankenberry and Count Chocula. (laughs) I sculpted those masks and molded them and poured them and painted them. And I did it out of my apartment because it was an outside job through these guys, and and we didn't have any furniture. And we're baking these molds in the oven. (laughs) And you have a four-year-old kid, it sounds like, at the same time. Well, now, let's see. One of them just turned... 40 on uh, Friday, and my oldest friend, Chris, turns 42 on uh, Tuesday. Huh. And uh, Chris is producing the movie I'm doing now. Chris mm. and I work together a lot. He directs a lot, you know, but he was doing all those sci-fi, you mm. know, mega shark versus crock of this or that. Like, even when you were in Florida, you just mentioned that you were in contact with people in Roger Corman's camp. Were you reaching out to people that you enjoyed as a teenager, like filmmakers? There was this whole group of people who were interconnected from Michigan and Florida, Don Jackson, Bob Skotak, Brian Greenberg, and I had worked on a movie called Shockwaves in Miami, mm-hmm. and it was shot in 16 and blown up, and Don Jackson, he was like obsessed with movies that were shot in 16 millimeter and blown up to 35, so Don found me, I don't know how, but he found me, maybe through Cinemagic Magazine or something like that, but he found me and we became friends over the telephone and through him I met Bob and Dennis Skotak and Brian Greenberg and all these other guys. And Don, you know, they, the Skotaks and Ernie Farina, who I'd worked with, Bart Mixon and Brent Mixon, they were from Texas and all these people knew each other. Hmm. Little by little, they all gravitated toward Los Angeles and the Skotaks and guys all started sort of, you know, connecting each other into jobs and stuff. It was through Bob Skotak that connected up with Roger Corman's 
And when you came to L.A., did you reach out to figures that, like, you were really fans of? When I got here, Don was here, Mm -hmm. Don Jackson, and we would run out and interview people who we thought we'd learn something, like Ted V. Michaels Uh and Larry Buchanan. Don and I interviewed Larry Buchanan for a couple hours one day, who had an office in Encino above the La Hot Club, which was a disco club, I think. Herbert L. Strzok was another one who had made Teenage Frankenstein and Blood of Dracula. And Herb Strzok, he was a grump the old guy but he liked me and he let me use his editing rooms for biohazard and huh. stuff and we'd sleep on the floor uh, in his editing room and edit through the night because we couldn't get in until they were closed you know and then we'd have to leave when the sun came up we, we ran around there it took a while to hook up uh, with Roger you know I used I hooked up with Roger mostly by uh, uh, renting the studios and stuff and we bought some stock footage from him from Battle Beyond the Stars for things mm-hmm. you know eventually I would probably make 10 movies for Roger I watched Operation Cobra just the other night actually I was trying to show somebody what life was like in India <laughs> <laughs> or, or what life wasn't like in India Ted of course is gone Larry Buchanan mm-hmm. is gone now but I became friends with Ted Michaels and uh, that was my first job I was a boom operator on some Ted be Michael. And uh, I told Ted, it was terrible because it was all through the night and I was a boom guy and I didn't know anything about it. Just hold the boom over their heads, you know? Mm -hmm. And years later, I saw Ted and I said, you know, Ted, your movie, I said, was the first job I ever had in Hollywood. He looked at me and he said, can I quote you on that? (laughs) (laughs) With those interviews, is that how you got in contact with people like Ed Wood? Because I've seen the very short interview you did with him in a magazine. That was back in Florida when I was kept trying to hook up with people who might help be able to raise money to get a movie done. I contacted Lon Chaney's uh, agent huh. when I was a high school student. I had this whole conversation trying to get Lon Chaney signed on for a movie that I'd written, figuring that I could then go out and raise the money. I did the same huh. thing with Mickey Rooney, who I'd done a play with, and uh, Bill Griffey, who had directed Stanley. And I kept trying to hook up, because I knew, I knew I was nobody. Yeah. So I said, let's hook up with somebody that people know, or their work people know. And that's how someone introduced me to Ed Wood. And I thought, well, here's a guy who needs to move with Bela Gosey. Maybe I could raise some money if uh, I hooked up with Ed Wood. Of, of course, naive as I was, none of these things ever worked. But it just kind of shows how my mind was working <laughs> yeah. at that time. Because even at that time, you know? Ed Wood was not the figure that he would become in pop culture. Oh, no, no. Nobody had ever heard of him mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, it was, it was like, uh, it, of course, it was beyond me to conceive that he would be considered really one of the worst people you could hook up with. I still do this today. I don't have to worry about, people don't worry about whether I can actually make a professional movie or not. People think about whether or not there's a market for this, can they sell this, how much can this cost. And I'm still sitting here thinking, oh, I wanted to do what I've been thinking about doing is sort of a creep show, Tales from the Crypt type of show, uh, and get Chevy Chase, who I did a movie with not long ago, to come in and play sort of a sort of a house that drip blood, you know, uh, the little wraparound. You yeah. know, where, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, take my own, you know, record, track record, and bring Chevy in on a show that would be done on a price and could we convince somebody to put up the money to do this based on him doing this and me doing this and don't think about the same way. I'm just curious about how your book, The New Poverty Row, came about. Like, what prompted you to write that book? Because it's amazing. I love it. Well, you know, I'm friends with a guy named Mark McGee, and he has a lot of those books out there, McFarland. And I said to Mark, you know, I said, you know, I really wish somebody would make a book that would talk about Roger's company film group. Mm-hmm. 
and Dave Hewitt's uh, Dave Hewitt's company and Jerry Warren's company and the Wolner Brothers. And Mark said, Fred, and he goes, why don't you just write it yourself? I said, I'd much rather buy this by someone else than to write it myself. I basically sat down and I wrote the book that I wanted to uh, read. And it gave me a chance to actually include my own company in the American Independent Production. It, it gave me the in, inside track to call people on the phone and get them to talk to me. You know, it was a fun thing for me. And I, I, I looked at one not too long ago and I thought it wasn't very well written. I got into, oh, I got, I don't know what it was. I got into some kind of a legal thing with somebody over a movie that I owned. And, uh, and the Dimensions Pictures Library came up. Mm-hmm. And it looked like it was, a, it looked to be like a very interesting part of this case. So I looked at the Wikipedia for Dimension Pictures. And I looked down at the bottom, I saw the footnote. <laughs> the resource was my own, my own name. I, I went, I mean, shit, you know. I'm curious to know how you came in contact with Gary Graver, because you guys worked together, according to IMDb, 47 times. I'm sure it's more than that, because there's a lot of things I worked on that Gary worked on yeah. that, that I didn't get any credit on. You know, I don't even know, because Gary kept a pretty good list of everything he worked on. I didn't. I'd show up and work for one or two days and replace a director and take over at lunchtime when a guy had to go to the hospital or something. I worked on a lot of movies as a director in little bits and pieces that I don't think I really kept track of. Sometimes somebody will mention something and it'll all come back to me, but I'll go, oh yeah. (laughs) When I was the younger person, I was offered to share an office with a producer named George Edwards. Mm -hmm. George Edwards was in Raleigh Studios, the old wooden part. And, And right outside of our place, Herman Cohen had his own parking spot with it. He was in the same wooden bungalow area. George Edwards was a guy who produced Queen of Blood and Boys of the Planet Prehistoric Women and yeah. The Attic and a movie called Frogs. And George met me somewhere, I can't remember, but he thought I was a boy genius. That's what he was calling it, <laughs> boy genius. And he offered me the front. He had two rooms. He offered to rent me the front room that everyone had to walk through to get to him. For two hundred dollars, I had a single telephone with call waiting on it. That was my entire operation. <laughs> I needed a DP because I did a movie, Armed Response, and mm-hmm. Zoom, and Clone. I did them all with a very good DP named Paul Elliott, and uh, he he also shot My Girl, that Colin McCulkin film. But Paul was one of those guys who was a real artist, not that Gary wasn't. But Paul would sacrifice my work time to get everything to look exactly the way he wanted it. So I would get like one take and I had to move on because I was so far behind schedule. And George Edwards said, Fred, you need to work with Gary Graver. He goes, he's super fast and you won't sacrifice how many takes you want based on Gary had shot the attic with Gary Snodgrass, which was George's. So I met Gary and I met Gary way back during Biohazard. We met at House of Pancakes down in Hollywood. I couldn't afford him. He wouldn't work for the rate that I had. I, the money I had, Gary wouldn't work. So I reconnect up with him three, four years later when I'm a lot more established. You know, Biohazard was made on weekends with short ends, a $60,000 budget. And even that, we had to scrape it together over a two-year period. Now I'm making movies that are a million dollars, a million plus. Mm-hmm. Gary came in and, and we met and we connected up on Commando Squad. And he, it was true. He was super fast. Everything was usually really in focus. We liked each other. We loved movies. We became great friends. I mean, we just became wonderful comrades. And uh, to his death, Gary was my go-to guy, you know, for mm-hmm. decades. You know, he didn't do everything because he wasn't always available. But yeah. usually, and we were social friends with Curtis Harrington, mm-hmm. you know, and Nancy Kwan and Ross Hagen. And, and Russ Tamlin and PJ Souls. There's this giant sort of like gang of people who had all worked together, Sid Hagen. And everybody was friends. We were all friends. John Felt Law, 
And the amount of people, Bob, Robert Vincent O'Neill did the Wonder Women and, mm-hmm. and Vice Squad. And, and everybody's friends. And it was just, it was an amazing time. It was an amazing time. And when you started to do films independently, did you have like a goal in mind? I'm thinking of like the little five, six day wonders that you were doing. Well, you know what? I worked for Trans World Entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. Or Third World Entertainment, as we used to call it. <laughs> and we were making The Tomb and we were making that movie Creature and Killer Clowns from Outer Space and Moon and Scorpio and Commando Squad and Deep Space. And these guys were making, they were making Jack. Yeah. I mean, they were making money. And I said, you know what? I said to Gary, I said, I'd like to tap into that. It was the day of the VHS craze. Everything could go to VHS. And we were making Commando Squad, and I, we were shooting at Bronson Canyon, and we're sitting out there, and the sun has gone down. It's nighttime, and the cave was kind of lit up for this fight with Bill Smith. And I was sitting there with Ross Hagen, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, Ross, I said, if guy was clever, he could probably make an entire movie and never leave this park. <laughs> Yeah. And Ross said, oh, Fred, you're Fred, you ought to try it. You ought to do it. Yeah. And we ended up on the last day of Commander Squad with this Quonset Hut uh, set, which was at Movie Tech Studios run by Lucky Brown, who had been in Giant from the Unknown and Blood of Dracula's Castle. And he was just his character. And we had this set built. And I thought, you know what? Until the end of the movie, I'm going to write five pages. And when it wraps and every, all the producers go home, I went around and I said to everybody, I said, 50 bucks, come back in 30 minutes. 50 bucks, come back in 30 minutes. <laughs> and we all like waved and they left. The producers left. Everybody reassembled and I brought Russ Tamblin in and Ross and uh, my wife at the time, Dawn Wildsmith. I these characters and I had to do a scene where they come and they buy this map to this underground kingdom or something from Russ Tamblin. And that was it. That's all we had. Mm-hmm. We went to the dailies like a few days later. We saw the quantum and we saw that stuff. And then all of a sudden, up comes the scene where we're, we're sitting there, and it's the scene that Gary and me and we had all shot after hours. And Gary said, Fred, this is much better than Commander Squad. He goes, we ought to make this movie. And it was around Thanksgiving, I guess. And I said, do you think we should just do it? He goes, he goes don't, don't think about it. He goes, let's just do it. <laughs> and, and I ran home, and I wrote this script. And before Christmas, we had gone out and shot this movie called The Phantom Empire. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey Combs, who was my next-door neighbor, came in and Bob Quarry, who was like our grandfather. And all these people came in and they came in and we made this six day movie. And then we went to Film Ventures and we sold it to Film Ventures and it made a shitload of money. And it, it, it even came back to me eventually as all films normally do. So we just started making these these little six days, five, sometimes five days. Like throw Britt Eklund in there and, mm-hmm. you know, or John Philip Law or Jan Michael Vincent and Karen Black, you know, and we'd make movies in between the other films just so we could get a little bit of the money that these guys were making off of us because we were all slaving away and these guys were driving up, you know, Rolls Royces and we're like, yeah. hey, wait a minute. There's got to be a better way, you know. Did you ever imagine you know, that you would get your own studio or your own production company and you could work just there or was it always just like between? No, it was always it was always just a goof. American mm. Independent Productions was a company that was created so that when you paid me as a director, you would pay my company as a loan out corp. Okay. And that way, taxes weren't taken out. And at the end of the year, I could write, if I took a trip to Vegas to make a deal on some movie with Ray Steckler, I could write that whole Vegas trip off because it was a corporate <laughs> thing. Yeah. So I still had a loan out corp. But eventually, AIP started, you know, my company started making their own films and distributing films. Mm-hmm. How did um, Retromedia come into play? I understand that you use it to distribute your own pictures, but you also started going out looking for prints of older films and putting them out. You know, 
I was contacted by a company who wanted to put our Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers on, on DVD. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I've got like 20 movies. I only like 20, 30 movies. And they said, well, we're interested in that one and maybe Evil 2. And I said, I don't want somebody to cherry pick my best title and leave me sitting here holding the bag on, you know, Fatal Justice and Making County War and stuff like that. So I, mean, I knew nothing about how DVDs were made. I don't even know if I owned a DVD player. I don't know. <laughs> I decided I wasn't going to license my films out. I was going to, like Russ Meyer, I was going to control my distribution. So I started my own DVD company and hooked up with some manufacturers and authors and things like that. And then with a middleman distributor, uh, I went out into the marketplace where Best Buy was, you know, one of the big buyers at the time. And I kind of liked that because, you know, in the in the DVD business, when you make a deal with Image Entertainment, they give you 20% and they keep 80%. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, I want it to be the other way around. I'll pay for the authoring. I'll pay for the artwork. I'll pay for the manufacturing of the DVDs. And you you get 20 and I get 80. And that's how I did it. And I'm still doing it. I mean, it's not as easy now, but the first thing you realize, of course, is you'll be out of business this year if all you put out are the 20 movies that you own. Yeah. So I started looking around and saying, man, what, what kind of movies would I like to see? You know, what do mm-hmm. I want to see on DVD? And I always kind of put out movies that I was excited about, mm-hmm. you know, that I wanted to see out. And so I always called it a boutique DVD company. I never did it for the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did it as a hobby. And filmmaking is my career. Yeah, The DVD business is something I do because I enjoy it. I like doing it. And I, I, it's fun, and it's fun. To, and then, and then every once in a while, we would fund somebody. We would give money to a young filmmaker and let them make an original movie. Like we did one called Tiki, and we did Amityville Death House, and we did Zombie Pirates, and you know, Fatal Justice. We did Making County War with Dan Haggerty, where we would fund other younger filmmakers who were trying to just get started. And in some instances, we did great. And in most recent instances, we haven't done great at all. <laughs> and I said, I don't know why I keep doing it, but I do. I still keep doing it. I funded a TV series recently. We haven't announced it yet, but it's all done. We've had some problems with Amazon, and now that we've, we've rectified those in the last few days, we're going to announce this uh, soon. But we, we gave money to a filmmaker in Ohio, and he made a six and a half hour episodes of a TV series for us. I've always been amazed at like the commentaries and the care you put into these releases, considering you've been working in the industry for so long, I would expect anybody else to be burnt out by this time and not be as passionate as you, especially on the retro media stuff. A lot of these shows, and I was very disappointed recently. Somebody finally got the rights to put out Deep Space. I tried and tried and tried, but MGM wouldn't deal with us. Mm. We weren't big enough, I guess. But somebody, Shout Factory or Scorpion releasing or somebody is bringing out Deep Space, and they, they wanted me to do a commentary track. I said, I'd be delighted. I said, but listen up. I said, I have saved for all these 30 years or whatever. I said, I have the blooper outtake from that movie in 35. I've transferred it to HD recently. It's all the blown takes. And, and, and I said, I've got this, and I've got behind-the-scenes video that somebody took of us making the movie. Huh. Oh, we don't, we don't want any of that. <laughs> what? I said, what? I said, this is a chance of a lifetime to look behind the, the scenes of a movie made in 1987. I, 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 and they said, well, you know, MGM would want us to get releases from everybody and the footage and stuff. I said, well, you, you said you already had an interview, on camera interview with Andrew Kell and uh, Bo Svensson. I said, so surely Charlie Napier's dead. Fox Harris is dead. They're all, the other guys are all dead. So couldn't you just ask these two people who you already have on camera? if it's cool to run this blooper and outtake reel. And they just didn't want it. And I said, if you're into that movie, which a lot of people seem to be, you've got an incredible opportunity to make this like one of the best Blu-rays of the year. And you're saying you don't want it. 
And it's all free. I've already made the HD transfer. They didn't want it. <laughs> you included the behind-the-scenes footage on the Alienator Blu-ray, and that stuff is amazing. Like you said, you never get a chance to see, like, just fly-on-the-wall footage of movies like that being made. Right. Well, those guys, I think that was Shout Factory, and they were they were down for it. Mm. Right? I did the same thing on Phantom Empire. We had behind-the-scenes uh, filming uh, out at Vasquez Rocks of Michelle and everybody doing their things, and we had all this stuff on Phantom Empire. And you know what? I've never seen a legal problem come up from that. I've got it. I got Telly Savalas, Richard Roundtree. I, I have this entire for years. I saved thirty-five millimeter footage and tracks for all the outtakes for movie after Haunting Fear. You know all these movies, and then I offer it to them, and they don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So you they have behind-the-scenes footage for it sounds like almost all your movies. Any kind of blooper or outtake, my editors knew to roll them up and put them in a box, you know, because this is the day of film editing. And they would just roll, they would roll this up, and at the end of the thing, they would make a reel. And the reel could be three minutes long or four minutes long or whatever it is. And I transferred a bunch of it to HD recently. And I, I did it for Mind Twister and Inner Sanctum with Tanya Roberts and all these different movies. And maybe I'm going to do, I've got a couple Blu-rays left to do of my own films. And mm -hmm. maybe I'll just put the entire outtake collection on one Blu-ray. Oh, that'd be amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah, as an extra. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can say no to that. that, that did. That's weird. Said, oh. Yeah. You know, the official Fred Olin Ray page. The uh, outtakes for Deep Space are there. I uploaded them a year or two ago. Huh. I said, they've been there for a couple of years and no one's complained. I said, I don't know what, what you're expecting to happen if you use these. They're on, the, they're on my Facebook page. You can actually watch them there. Um, speaking of DVD special features, I just have to ask about, when I talk about commentaries you've done, the one that always comes up is the Jacko commentary. It's hard to live down at this <laughs> point. You know? It wasn't a gag or anything like that? Like you and Steve were really going at it by the end of that commentary track? Well, no, no, we're, we're, we're friends, but I mm -hmm. have a very disturbing sense of humor. Yeah. And Steve is a very sensitive guy. And the funniest part about it was the part that no one could see is that he got up and he stormed out of the room and slammed the door. And the door, because I didn't want to be disturbed, the, the, the lock was on. Mm -hmm. So he, he goes out, he storms around, and he changes his mind. Guys, come back in and he locked out. <laughs> <laughs> he locked out of the room. You know, we're friends, and Steve and I are still friends. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things. You know, Bob Corey got so mad at me one time, he got up in a huff and walked off. And, but eventually, of course, he had to come back because I had the car, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Bob was another irascible, you know, character um, that uh, I rescued from obscurity, really, if you think about it. I mean, I didn't do it deliberately. I, I was always looking up. I just wanted to work with Robert Quarry. I mean, he was mm -hmm. a horror star to me, you know. Uh, I didn't realize that whatever we did would probably revitalize his career, which he had not had one for years when we first met him, so. Yeah, you worked with him a number of times. Yeah. And oh, Bob became a member of our family. Mm -hmm. uh, Dawn called him Uncle Bob, and he used to house sit for me with Chris and look after Chris when I'd go to New York and stuff. And, you know, we took care of Bob. I took care of Bob all the way to the very end. In fact, Bob's niece, Julie, and me and Lee Langford were the three people who cleaned out his apartment at the Motion Picture Home after he died. We had a very, had a very, very, very long history. Got arrested, you know? Mm-hmm. I think I was watching the Jonathan Ross special you did, and you said you made around 25 movies in five years. Were you always keeping an eye out for those kind of been forgotten? Sid Haig was not the tough guy I thought he was going to be. I found that Sid had a great fear of crabs and spiders. <laughs> and uh, Sid had work. He'd retired. And I don't know how he came in to see me, but he had no beard and he had a head full of hair. And mm -hmm. uh, I said, Sid, you need to shave your head and grow your beard. He goes, well, I don't think I can do it that fast, Fred. I said, well, do what you can. In the commander squad, he had to get knocked off a pier into the water at Lake Castaic. And he said, Fred, he goes, there might be some crabs down there. 
I got this thing about crabs. It goes all the way back to beyond Atlantis. I said, Sid, if you want, I'll jump in first. I said, all you got to do is go under, come up. And he said, we'll get you right out. <laughs> it took a while. I think he did finally go in. Sid's a hypnotist. You know, he's a clinical hypnotist. That's where he made most of his money. Stop you from smoking, keep you from eating too much. He's Sid is a bona fide certified clinical hypnotist. John Ashley was another guy. John Ashley and I became great friends. Mm. And John Ashley was completed. I mean, he came from a very wealthy family. They owned a theater chain in Oklahoma City, you know. And I remember him with the beach party and the uh, Mad Doctor of Blood Island. John Ashley was just like, hey, Freddie, what's going on? What the fuck? What the fuck? I mean, he dropped the F-bomb about every fifth word. <laughs> and he was very wealthy, but he was an incredible, incredible guy. I mean, there's so many people. I mean, John Carradine and Cameron yeah. Mitchell and Aldo, Aldo Ray. I mean, the, the list of people, uh, Tony, Anthony Isley, uh, Julie Newmar, I mean, Britt Eklund, and, you know, Paula Raymond, you know, for Beast from 20,000 Fathoms or whatever that movie. I can't, I, I should sometimes, Dr. Crab, I should probably make a list someday of the people I've worked with. <laughs> you should, for because... For the most part, I've almost, I've almost always had a great experience, mm-hmm. and I saw, I saw on this thing called Penny Dreadful recently, somebody showed me an episode, David Warner, mm-hmm. the guy from Time Bandit, and Time After Time, David Warner was so, in these movies, he's so menacing, but in real life, he was so pleasant. Mm. I mean, he was one of the easiest, nicest guys I ever worked with. He'd like go, you know, stand here, look over there, say this line. I said, yes, that'd be perfect. He goes, uh, do you want another? I said, I, I said, I'm happy. You're happy. He goes, I'm happy. I said, let's all move on. And I mean, you just kind of go crazy. Mm-hmm. Leave Van Cleef a little, little grumpy. You mm-hmm. know, he's a little grumpy because he's an older guy. I used to drive to his house every morning instead of a crew member, I would pick him up myself in my car and drive him to the set so that I could talk to him every day in the car. Because yeah. when you're on a set, it's business. you got to get on with mm-hmm. things. Same thing with Robert Vaughn. Robert Vaughn flew here from Connecticut or something. He stayed at Dick Gaudier's house. And I would pick Robert Vaughn up every morning and drive him to the set so I could just have that half hour or so in the car to talk to him. did the same thing with Barbara Steele. Every morning, I would pick Barbara Steele up and drive her to the set just so we could talk. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to the set, you know, then it's business, you know. It's John Carradine. But I'd go pick up John Carradine at the hotel every morning, drive him to the set. That's the fan Fred Ray. Even people like Richard Harrison, would you be able to question them about their work? Oh, no. Richard Harrison, I became tremendous friend. Oh, really? We became we, we became friends. Yeah, we're still friends today. I mean, I'd go to his house, we'd go to lunch, dinner, he'd come to my house for parties. A lot of these people, I would become very good friends with, like Hans Hall. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, Richard Harrison, I became great friends. I mean, Richard had to be, I don't know how many films I did with Richard. I had not too many, maybe five. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But then he started being friend movies that were made by kids that worked for me who they would get him. Richard and I were very close. Because I re- recall seeing him in Angel Eyes. And, Angel Eyes was, uh, that, that actually, that part of that part of that was filmed at Richard's house. That's his house <laughs> overlooking the ocean there. Really? And uh, we shot, yeah, we shot part of Terminal Force there with mm-hmm. Richard and Troy Donahue. I can't think of the other things that we did. I know, you know, my problem is, is I've made too many movies. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't re- I can't remember. I can't remember. Was that I a- know he did Empire of the Dark that I was involved with. Yes. He did a movie called Chan- Channeler with Dan Aggerty mm-hmm. that uh, one of the kids that worked for me sprung out on his own and wanted to make his own movie. Oh, Richard was in um, Alien Within with Gordon Mitchell, another muscle guy from Italy. Right. Became friends of ours. I've got a painting hanging on my wall. Gordon Mitchell was a painter. Very abstract. And would you try to, like, get all the stories out of Richard and Gordon? Oh, because... oh no, no, we talked about this. Absolutely. We talked about their old movies all the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. 
You know, I wasn't that familiar with Richard's films. Okay. I mean, I'd seen I'd seen Son of Hercules versus Medusa, mm. and I knew that he he made some movies in the Philippines where they, he made like one movie, they cut him up and made it five movies out of him. Yeah, all those but, Godfrey hosts. Gordon, Gordon Mitchell, we talked quite a bit about. Mostly, what we talked about was being in movies where. Klaus Kinski would be speaking German, <laughs> and then this guy speaking French, this guy speaking Italian, and you're speaking English. How do you know? You know, and then Richard would tell me, you know, because Richard started out working for James H. Nicholson, you know, at American International Pictures, right? He's in uh, Master of the World, and he married Nicholson's daughter. Oh, so yeah. all of a sudden, Nicholson decides he's going to send Richard Harrison overseas to uh, to make some spy movie. I can't remember what the name of it was, but Richard goes over there, and, and Richard's telling me off what it was like, because here you show up at 7 a.m. in the morning, and you film till 7.40 at night. It's 12 hours a day plus a 40-minute lunch. And Richard was saying that he showed up at the studio, and that no one was there. He waited, waited, waited. Around 11 a.m., they started rolling in. Then he'd have a two-hour lunch, and he said nothing could get done. <laughs> and it, it, he... He would just tell us these stories about going to Italy and how much he liked it there, so he stayed. He was friends with Barbara Steele. That's how I met Barbara Steele. Oh, I went to okay. Richard's house for a dinner dinner party one night. Barbara Steele was there with Vince Edwards. So that's how I connected up with Barbara. And as a filmmaker, when you would like go to a different project, would you ever have goals in mind? Like, I want to make a Western, or I want to make a sword and sandal picture, or were you just like, whatever's available? Well, if we were making it ourselves, if we were getting the money, we'd make what we thought should go. We made a sword and sandal movie. Mm-hmm. We made this and this and that and that. But if somebody's hiring me, I mean, I go where the paycheck is, you yeah. know. You know, I'm not interested in making a cake that I want to eat. I want to make the cake that you want to eat. Mm. I want to make a pie that you want to buy. It's not about me. I'm the supplier, you know what I mean? So it doesn't it doesn't matter that you, you, you make the world's best cookie out of, you know, sawdust because that's what you like. No one's going to eat a sawdust <laughs> cookie. So yeah. You better make the cookie that somebody else wants to buy. So I usually, you know, I kind of go where the paycheck, you know, is. Mm-hmm. If I'm not independently producing, and if I am independently producing, I try to think of projects that would excite me or interest me or that I think somebody would want to buy. Do you usually have projects on like the back burner or that you're just waiting for the opportunity to be able to make them? You know what? All of my, all of my, uh, sticking my neck out, uh, in the last few years, very little of it has ever paid off. Mm. We made Reptosaurus, Megaconda, and Super Shark. Thank God they all made a profit. The zombie zombie pirates and Amityville death house and all these other little things we've invested money in. I don't care how little you invest, we can't seem to get it back. Huh. We made Super Shark very cheaply, and it was a sci-fi channel world premiere. Mm-hmm. So that movie still took me five years to break even. Wow. And when I finally broke even and everybody got 10 or 20% profit on their money, I said, you know what? It took us five years to get back to where we would be if we had never made the film at all. Yeah. It took us five years to get back to zero. And after midnight, after midnight was that haunted strip club movie I did with Tawny Katane and Richard Grieco. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. I love that movie. I made it around some of those bikini movies for Cinemax. You know, we on off days we would shoot this other movie. And it came in so it came in around sixty thousand dollars. It took four years just to get the sixty thousand dollars back and maybe a twenty percent profit. You know, at that point you have to say, I made this movie because I love making movies. You don't do it for the money. You could make a big score. You know, Steve Latchell's movie, Dark Universe, which I think we funded for $50,000. That movie made like $350,000. So there were a couple of movies that were 
you know, we made big scores on some of these films. Haunting Fear, you know, we would spend 140 grand and make, you know, 340,000. Yeah. We make $200,000. Those days are over, friends. Mm -hmm. They're over. Right now it's TV Christmas movies and Women in Trouble and Lifetime. That's what yeah. we're doing. I did, a, I did a Stephen Seagal movie recently. I know I did Hatfields and McCoys and Frank and Jesse James, American Bandits with Peter Fonda. I did that. Is that more towards what you enjoy to do, like Westerns? Well, I love that sort of thing, but Lionsgate wanted these movies. I didn't sell them. Somebody came okay. to me and said, we want to make Frank and Jesse James. Someone came to me and said, we want to make Hatfields and McCoys. And then someone said, we want to make a movie with Steven Seagal. You can have him for two days. Mm -hmm. What do you want to do? What could you do? I said, we'll make him be a sniper who gets trapped on a rooftop in some Afghanistan town and he's left behind. And it's about them coming back to town to get him and his efforts to survive left alone in this town after this big firefight. And it was a great, and in my mind, you know, people look at it and go, oh, this is this, this is that, but it's still a very low-budget movie. Seagal's not the big star of the movie. He isn't the big star of any movie anymore. Mm -hmm. But I just, I, you know, I was offered the job, and I was offered a chance to make a combat film, and I love shoot them up. So, of course, I'm going to say yes, I'm going to do the very best I can. And, you know, people can pick it apart and make fun of it if they want, but we did. Everybody gave it 110%. It was 110 degrees out there and uh, in the deserts and stuff. And uh, I liked it. And so not everything is a Christmas movie or a women's thriller. Yeah. But a great bit of what makes up the household budget of the Fred Ray family <laughs> is uh, Christmas. I'm doing a Christmas movie right now. <laughs> I mean, I got to say that when I see on the Sniper DVD that you did commentary on it, I'm like, ah, instant purchase. Got to grab it. The trick they don't want you to do, of course, is a lot of times... If you look at the Hatfields and McCoys, the producers sat in on the they sat in on the commentary track because I I think they don't want me to they don't want me to talk about the budget or how many days uh -huh. it was shot in or any of that stuff. So they're they're sort of babysitting me to make sure that I'm not too honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I want you to be not not be too truthful. Roger Corman was the same way. He went on TV, and I've got this clip. I put it. I actually put it on YouTube or Vimeo, and it's Roger and Sam Arkoff and Lloyd Kaufman. They're talking about me for about 10 minutes. And Roger's talking about Attack of the 61st Centerfold. He was saying the budget was just under $2 million. <laughs> so I remember distinctly, the budget was $250,000, which is under $2 million. So I, you know, truth in advertising, you know? I mean, I love the um, Puerto Rico trilogy you put out. Just all the honest <laughs> truth. You know, they, they somebody just asked me if they could reissue that, and I've actually been working on reauthoring. Oh, really? Uh, that, but 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 this, but on this edition, last one on Earth, be uh, sixteen by nine. I mean, it'll it'll be um, it'll be a sixteen by nine, you know, enhanced for TVs where it was letterboxed. Mm. That's something we're working on. I mean, obviously, I'm only two weeks away from shooting my new Christmas movie, so certain priorities have to adhere to. And were there any times where you were like, okay, I got to do something else. I can't work in film anymore. No, there was a we, we were there was a time when we were making our own little movies, like, you know, Beverly Hills Vamp and stuff like that. And you'd have to make the movie, and then you'd have to wait for a profit to come in. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I really enjoyed the days when I would make a movie and you would pay me. You know, <laughs> yeah. And whether you made a million dollars or didn't make a million dollars was not my problem. You you paid me a check, and I, there was a point where I said, I'm not going to work again until someone pays me. Mm. I'm not going to make another film where I have to sit and wait and try to make a sale, and I've got to do all the work and then get my paycheck six months later. And so I sat on my ass, and I said, I'm not working until somebody calls me, and it was Inner Sanctum. Tanya Roberts' movie, that was the one that broke that cycle and then put me back right back into everything. Out of all your films that you've made, what would you say, like, I don't know, three or five, that you wish more people would go and check out? 
you know, it's funny because people will ask you what your favorite film mm-hmm. is. And I always tell them sometimes your favorite film is probably not your best film. Yeah. It's probably your best experience. It would be the movie, the movie that you enjoyed making the most. But I love, uh, I love Hatfields and McCoys. That's a movie that I watch over and over again. I truly enjoyed, uh, I hate the title because it was called Eyewitness when I made it. But I made a movie, and I think it's Eyewitness on DVD. I made a movie called River Raft Nightmare, which was a river rafting movie. Hmm. And it's the only Lifetime women's movie I ever made that came out on DVD. And there's movies like that that I love to watch and love that I have made, like Sniper and things like that. That the experience making the film and doing the film was probably more important to me than whether I thought the movie was my best film. Yeah. You know, I always loved Armed Response. I have a very, very soft spot for that movie. I had a great uh, fondness for The Shooter. I thought The Shooter was probably one of oh. the best films I ever did. I was just watching The Shooter today, and I'm like, hey, it feels like a William Whitney film. You know, if you see it in letter, it, 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 there's a lot of full-frame versions, but mm. Showtime, for some reason, had a beautiful widescreen HD version that they ran on Showtime Women's Network. Huh. And I said, why would the shooter be on a women's network? Then I watched it and I went, okay, it's got a very strong female character in Valerie Wildman. Mm-hmm. Very strong character. And she's very proactive. And there's a lot of Django in there. There's a lot of Italian Westerns yeah. in the uh, in the shooter. But the shooter is one of those movies that I, I really, really liked making and I really liked uh, watching. I was looking into it. I think it was released in Germany in like a widescreen Blu-ray version. Well, you know, I was sitting there at Christmas a few years ago. There's a, a channel called Reels, like R-E-E-L-Z. Mm-hmm. And they were running a 16 by 9 version. And then Showtime had a beautiful 16 by 9 version. And then on DVD or whatever, all you get are these full frame, you know, uh, versions of the movie. But I, I, I really enjoyed the hell out of that movie. Mm-hmm. I really did. And I really loved making um, Hatfields and McCoys, probably the experience. And I wrote Hatfields and McCoys and I wrote Sniper. You know, the characters in Frank and Jesse James was just so impoverished. But Jeffrey Combs, I thought, was really good in that. Mm-hmm. But it was so impoverished. But it's your own voice. The characters are saying what I really believe. And if you watch Hatfield and McCoy's, I used to tell people because I have a filmmaking family. My son, Chris is a producer. You know, my wife at the time, Kim was a line producer and a producer. You know, my son, Max is a, is a set dresser. And I used to say to people, cause we're from West Virginia. And I'd say, listen up. I said, this is Hatfield's and McCoy's. I said, you fuck over one of the rays. I said, you fucked over everybody. So I said, don't think you're going to shit on Chris and then come over here. Everybody's going to stick together. It doesn't matter. I said, the Ray family's going to stick together. So just know that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so when I did have Bill to McCoy, you know, they wanted to have Lionsgate wanted a feature film version to come out right when this miniseries of Bell Gibson came out. So I said, they said, Fred, you're, the, you're from West Virginia. You're the person to do this. I said, I know I am. I said, let's go. We, we shot it in Kentucky. They shot their film in, in Bulgaria. <laughs> But, I mean, we had Christian Slater, and, you know, we had Jeff Fahey and Perry King and uh, Jerry Lacey and Tim Abel. It was a great cast. And to have the characters, Priscilla Barnes was in it, too, and to have the characters portraying my characters, the ones that I created, and hear them say what I believe, that's, that meant something to me. You know, and as I sit there and I watch them now, I sit there and I go, right on. That's exactly how I feel. Those characters in that movie, when they speak, they're saying what I'm thinking, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
And that's something you feel like when you're just doing a for hire job <laughs> that you don't feel that way. When that they you- let you, when they let you, when they let you write the script and they don't get into your face too much, you can kind of make the movie you want. You know, if that's your movie, if you're like into shoot 'em ups, which I am, I you know I loved making Frank and Jesse James. I mean, it's really impoverished. I mean, literally, I think we made it in five or six days <laughs> for under under one hundred fifty thousand dollars. You know, the part of that went to Peter Fonda. But still, we all loved it. We had a great time. I mean, nobody, everybody shows up for work every day anxious and excited to go forward. And I can't say that. I can't say that about every film that we're on. People don't show up roaring to go for the new Christmas movie that you're shooting? It's tough sometimes. You know, the, we, we did a film recently, and that was a Lifetime women's movie. But if you're a horror fan or a Dark Shadows fan, you should watch it because it's called Deadly Shores. And all I ever wanted to do for years was make a movie in a lighthouse. <laughs> and that's what it was. It's a lighthouse movie. It's kind of like uh, that, the Night Walker, that William Castle movie, the yeah. Night Walker. It's like Rebecca Gaslight. It's about this girl who they, you think she might be psychologically unhinged. You don't know. She marries this guy and she moves to this remote lighthouse. And of course, she turns out to be this psycho killer. They lock her up and she goes crazy. It's, it's, it's kind of the end of Haunting Fear. I just reused the motivations of Haunting Fear and then I made this, this movie called Deadly Shores. It plays about once every two, three weeks. But if you like that kind of movie, you should look at it. It's a gothic thriller, you know, like a hammer film or something. And, and, and everybody tried to, their hardest, to get everything I wanted because my son, Chris, who was my producer with me on this, he said, I know that you've been waiting years to make this movie. So he said, I wanted to make sure. And I mean, I waited and waited and waited till the end of November because I wanted all the trees to have lost their leaves. I wanted it huh. to be cold. I wanted the sky to be gray and overcast. You know, I wanted this bleak, stark look to everything and we got it i mean it looks like the fog you know it has a lot it owes a lot to the fog yeah and a lot of these other things and you know what i hate to say it but it cost me my it cost me my job i think really um i had made like three or four movies for the same company somebody came in and they said oh this all went badly i went why they said oh we heard through the grapevine that this didn't sell the lifetime and you're done you're done here they want the movies cookie cutter. Everybody wants the movies to be exactly the same as the last one. Stolen, kidnapped at 16, or, you know, my mom's a pedophile, or whatever. You know, and I here I dare to step outside of this and make this sort of ghost story in this lighthouse. And I thought it was a great film. And when they when I showed it to them, everybody at the end of this company, they said, Fred, this is exactly the way we envisioned it. This looks hmm. exactly like the script did on the page. I said, well, that's because I wrote it, you know. And it's like, oh, that's it. You know, I... Five movies on the company, and all of a sudden, the phone never rang again. Yet, there goes the movie, and there it is on Lifetime. Not only that, but six months after it airs, it airs three times in one night. They air that movie three times in a row. And I kind of wrote them just to see if I could get a reaction. I said, guys, Deadly Shores just played three times in a row last night. They didn't run anything but Deadly Shores for you know six hours. I said, that's really bizarre. And I said, it's very unusual. And of course, I never heard from them again. But I, so I think I, I think I killed my career at this company <laughs> by making this Lighthouse movie. So I'm going to encourage everybody who listens to your show, go see Deadly Shores. <laughs> I'm, it's I'm, on Lifetime Movie, Movie Network. Watch Deadly Shores, drive the ratings up, and show these fuckers that I was right after all. I feel like Bela Lugosi in one of those Edward movies. I'm, I'm all right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's great to hear that you're still, like, driving for those passion projects. Well, I took, yeah, I took, I took something they wanted to do, and I, I made it into something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Stage Fright. I don't know if you've ever seen Stage Fright. No, I haven't. Okay, well, it's about this opera singer who who was uh, stalked and almost killed by this guy. And then all these years later, she decides they, they wanted to do a sort of, sort of comeback concert. Someone's trying to kill her again. It's like Phantom of the Opera. 
and that because the whole dressing room is connected to these caves that run underground and end up and there's somebody coming in and out of the theater and stuff and it's it's a really pretty groovy movie i took a lifetime women's channel type movie and i made it into a movie that i wanted to make yeah and of course this is probably this is just this is step number two in my uh cutting my own throat at this company it was the same company but but the movies the movie stage fright on lifetime movie network is great it's a great little film it's got that girl from whatever that tarantino planet terror whatever it is or cheryl ladd's daughter yeah oh jordan ladd yeah do you feel like these movies aren't getting out there do you get any like critical notices from people seeing it like on showtime or because like you mentioned they don't really get released on dvd no they don't there's no market for tv movies i did a movie called unwanted guest about this girl who moves in these people's house and she just sort of like ruins their life Mm -hmm. you know slowly slowly tries to murder them all so she can take over the mother's role and somebody put up a review on somewhere on the internet and said that I was probably the second best writer in lifetime ever had working for them. And I thought, Oh, well, that's cool. But then I meet people who go, Fred, you know, we sure hope you make some new movies soon. I said, listen, <laughs> make it three to four movies a year. You're just not watching the right channel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't gone any, I've gone anywhere. I work as much as ever, but it's not, I spit on your grave. You yeah. know, part three, you know what I mean? I'm working, I'm out there, you know, I'm making Christmas movies with George Hamilton, Shelley Long, Chevy Chase. I'm working all the time, but you've got to go to the right channel. If you want to, I got five movies on TV every week. <laughs> yeah. Between life, between lifetime and Ion and, and up TV. I've got about five movies on a week, but it's not where fans of Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers are looking. Just, you know, put my name into direct TV. Type my name in. I'll tell you what I got coming up this week on TV. I'm working all the time. Well, I got to say, when I went home for Christmas, my mother had a bunch of Christmas movies she saved. And I was like, wait, that's a Fred Olin Ray one. Let's watch that one. You know, I get it from waitresses. They'll, oh, what do you do? Uh, so I'll do this. And they don't know. They don't know the titles. You say, I'll say, oh, I did the one about the girl who went home for her friend's Christmas wedding. It was like Groundhog Day. And she had to keep reliving the day over and over. Oh, and they, they've seen that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't remember the titles. But if you tell them, oh, is this a girl who the elf gives a pen to and she can then hear what people are thinking about her. Oh, oh, yes, yes, I saw that. And it's like, it's always waitresses, mm. you know. <laughs> somebody like your mom. It's somebody like your mother. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah, honey, thank you. you know. <laughs> Do you so. still have, like, a hankering to make monster movies? The thing that, like, that got you into making oh, movies? Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course, but you know what I mean? It, I got I'm, I got kids. You know, I have four sons, no wives. I still got two dependent sons living with me. I got no mother, no child support, no anything. So I kind of, like I said, I have to kind of go where the money is, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I got to go where the paycheck is. And then people go, once we make a movie like this, I said, I'm just waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> when the phone rings, uh, I'm there, so. Oh, uh, well, thanks so much for taking this time, Fred. The best way to get your retro media releases is through your Facebook page, right? Well, you know what? I don't actually, to be honest with you, I don't promote anything. I, I, I'm, I'm a fuddy-duddy that way. I mean, I'm, I'm making films. Mm-hmm. I have, if you, if you go, uh, like my distributor didn't want to do Blu-ray. So I do Blu-ray and I do a certain amount of DVD reissues on my own. Yeah. I only sell through Amazon because I don't have time to do anything else. Mm-hmm. I got a distribution center that sends them to Amazon. Amazon sells them, sends the money to me. But on my official Fred Olin Ray page, there's a shop now button. If you hit that button, it takes you to my storefront in Amazon and mm-hmm. shows you everything that I, that Retro personally sells. They view as my, um, 
regular DVD distributor, and they do whatever it is they do. They sell on Amazon, they sell on, you know, DVD Planet, whatever's left, and they handle all that other stuff. I'm just, I'm just not a big promoter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also, Amazon or Facebook is very picky. Yeah. If there's any cleavage in your ad, like I put up an ad for uh, the Alien Dead Blu-ray. It's a painting, and the painting's 30 years old. Uh, it was out for about five days, and then they contacted me and said, uh, we're, we're jerking your ad because um, there's some cleavage in the painting, you know, of the zombie attacking the girl. This, you know, And they don't refund your money. They just cancel your oh, ad. Oh, man, ridiculous. But, uh, but if I can do it, I usually advertise on Facebook. And uh, I'm not one of these people who post about myself a lot. Mm-hmm. I post about weird and funny, strange things that I see in my life every day. Because I'm not a self-promoter. I used to, people used to say, oh, you know, this would be great for you, Fred. I'll promote you. And I said, listen, the only place I want to see my name is on a check. I don't need any magazine coverage. I don't need to be covered in Fangoria. I don't need to be on a podcast. I don't need to be interviewed anywhere or in somebody's book. And I feel bad for these guys who did this. They're doing a Quentin Tarantino book, and they wanted to talk to me about how I loaned him my camera to shoot his first movie. Mm. And it's not like I don't want to talk to them. It just hasn't conveniently worked out. And it's like, oh, this is a book on Quentin Tarantino. I said, what do I care? What does it mean to me? What does Mm -hmm. it mean to me? I loaned him a camera. He made a movie. Who cares? You know what I mean? If my name's on a check, I'm down. (laughs) <laughs> Anything else, you know, it's got it's got to work for me, or it doesn't work at all. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't have an ego about this stuff. I don't care. Yeah, I really don't. I'm I'm, I'm like thinking about retiring. I would be retired right now if uh, Oprah Winfrey hadn't o- offered me a multi picture deal this year. I would be retired right now. Really? And as it is, I'm going back into the fray, and I'm going to make two Christmas movies for own mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, God bless America. Do you think you would still make movies for yourself after you retire, or would you say that's it? Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm always plotting and planning. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always plotting and planning my next move, so there you go. Oh, well, that's great to hear. I still think Chevy Chase and I, I still think Chevy and I have a job to do. We've got something to do. And I still think it's going to be a Tales from the Crypt type of thing, you know? Why not? All right, well, thank you very much for talking to me, Fred. Thank you. That's a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 